Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, Freedom Day has been and gone, but the pandemic is a long way from being over. So as cases rise and the pace of vaccinations falls, is the government right to have pushed on to stage four of its roadmap? We're going to look at the decisions the Prime Minister has taken and the ones he may yet have to take, as well as the ongoing assault by Dominic Cummings on his record and judgment. We'll then dive into a subject which is all over the front pages just a few weeks ago, but that feels like a very long time ago. That's non-executive directors, or NEDs, as the Whitehall jargon would have it. They're meant to bring outside expertise to government departments, but in Matt Hancock's case, one of his NEDs was an old university friend, then became his lover, which sounds just a little bit like a conflict of interest. A new IFG report has crunched the numbers on NEDs and has some crunchy recommendations too. We're going to talk to its author. So joining me today in our studio is Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work. He used to work in the cabinet office as well. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. Tom Sass, IFG Associate Director and our resident expert on all things to do with COVID and science is here. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining us. And I'm delighted that we've also got with us our senior fellow, Jill Rutter, whose versatility in commenting on all aspects of government comes from years of working there and for us. Hi, Jill. Hello, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. Okay, let's kick off Freedom Day, which Boris Johnson spent in self-isolation after coming into close contact with Health Secretary Sajid Javid, who has COVID and so is also locked away at home. So not a lot of freedom there. The Prime Minister beamed into our homes from Chequers, which is not a terrible place to be forced to isolate, to tell us to embrace the lifting of restrictions, but to do it cautiously. Alex, you wrote a withering piece for us. You're not impressed. No, thanks, Bronwyn. And I think the um, some of the contradictions in the government's policy are exposed just by your introduction there. I mean, uh, fundamentally, this is different to previous phases in the pandemic. It's, uh, it's a finely balanced uh, set of decisions that the government's making. It's not like the sort of confusion and chaos in March, uh, February 2020, nor is it like the decisions at the back end of 2020, where uh, the government and the prime minister were just sort of too late and on the wrong end of the evidence. Uh, There are lots of conflicting evidence. It's a difficult moment. But all that said, the government's policies just seem sort of riven with contradictions. The most obvious one at the moment that we're all talking about is the fact that their policies don't really work. The very benefits the government's seeking from opening up through supporting uh, businesses to open up are being undermined by the very high case numbers as more and more people get pinged by the app or followed up with test and trace. The very people who are most affected by this are the younger people who uh, haven't been fully vaccinated yet. Those are the people who both staff and use a lot of the uh, entertainment and hospitality businesses. More fundamentally than that as well, we're at a moment now when the government's taking a huge gamble. So Jonathan Van Tam, the government's deputy chief medical officer, has said there's enormous uncertainty about how high uh, the peak will be. But at the same time, the prime minister is uh, saying that he's not going to use some of the tools that, as he described it, are in the locker and have been in the locker over the course of the last uh, 18 months or so for the government to control the pandemic. So it's a it's a tricky moment. What, what kind of tools are you talking about? You're talking about things like wearing masks. So whether it's wearing masks or asking people to continue to work from home or restrictions on uh, indoor contact, um, I, I'm, I wouldn't argue that we should definitely introduce all of those. But I think the government needs to be much more upfront about the possibility that it might need to deploy some of these measures over the coming weeks and months as case numbers get high. We've got mixed messages, don't we? We've got, um, you don't have to work from home anymore, but the government is not encouraging you to go back. You don't have to wear masks anymore, but you're supposed to be careful. And and if you look at the London Tube and buses, one place where you still are absolutely required to wear masks, lots of people actually aren't. I'd say about a third 
third. Does this show to you the 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 cost of mixed messages? I think that's ex- exactly right, and uh, sort of the you know at the same time being both cautious and celebrating Freedom Day just doesn't stack up. One of the things that um, the Prime Minister at the press conference talked about was almost sort of managing the wave of COVID cases. So the government is keen that this particular third wave of cases hits over the course of the summer while uh, children are on holiday uh, and people are more able to socialise outdoors and the NHS is under less pressure. In one sense, they're hoping that case numbers will peak and then decline again over the next few months. But at the same time, they're urging uh, caution because they don't want too many people to be affected. Uh, The thing that we've learnt through the pandemic is that clear, straightforward, simply explained measures taken early are the ones that uh, seem to work best. Uh, and the confusion that we're seeing isn't, isn't that. All right. Tom, I um, wonder if you can pick up on what Alex is saying. I mean, the, the point is really quite blunt, isn't it? We're opening up just as case numbers are soaring. And Alex was referring to the second lockdown where tens of thousands of people died. Many scientists argue unnecessarily. Uh, because of the late lockdown, but we're now, it's not just late, we're opening up as these cases are rising. What do you think the risk is? So it's a different type of decision to the one that was taken back in December. Uh, Essentially, back then, you had sort of all of the scientists lined up arguing for, uh, you know, an imposition of of a lockdown and essentially saying that was necessary to stop a very fast rising wave. And for all the reasons that Alex says, I think the government, the decision this time is much more finely calibrated and there's much more uncertainty around it. And you can see that in a way in the sense that the, the scientists are div- divided or more divided this time. Um, we've got a little bit of a sort of nostalgic sense of that September yesterday or the day before when we had some of the SAGE members briefing journalists. You saw a report in the Eye newspaper saying that you know some of these interventions might be needed to be reimposed in a couple of weeks' time. But I think, you know, broadly, if you if you look back to that press conference two and a bit weeks ago, where Boris Johnson set out this approach, I wrote a piece which was kind of, you know, asking the questions about how they would build confidence in it. And I think what we've really seen since then is only more confusion and they start to unravel. And that sort of gives you a sense that this is a government, this is a sort of position the government feels that it's forced into, but can't really explain and set out the rationale for why it's chosen particular measures. And, and and just to pick up on the masks point, I think that's the right one to pull out Bronwyn, because, you know, m- what the scientists are saying is that if you, if you only have two thirds or three quarters of people wearing masks, pretty much all of the benefits fall away. Really, you need very high compliance for that to work at all. Um, so if we're going to see any movement, it might, might be on that, because that's a pretty low cost measure to move on. And we may yet see more, more movement. Jill, I wonder if you can take us back, to, you know, a day or so ago to the moment that Downing Street announced that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor weren't going to self-isolate as they were part of some sort of pilot scheme. Then there was an outcry. Then there was a U-turn. Some misjudgment, in your view? It was clearly a completely awful communications effort in Downing Street and coordination effort. Uh, the very interesting thing is that Robert Jenrick, who was the minister who was charged with going around the Sunday morning shows, saying that the prime minister and the chancellor were part of this randomly selected pilot scheme and therefore didn't need to self-isolate. The fact that he hadn't pushed back and said, you're not really expecting me to say this, are you? I thought was quite interesting in terms of the uh, position of cabinet ministers. The fact that the speedy U-turn seemed to be initiated 
with a unilateral move by Rishi Sunak to reconsider that the Prime Minister was then forced to follow. That all looked just an absolute mess. But I think one of the things that uh, that I think both Alex and Tom have been saying is the government has just failed to think through the implications of their systems, you know, like test and trace and isolate, pinging or whatever, that have been set up to manage when caseloads are relatively low. Uh, what are the implications of trying to open up, run the economy as openly as possible, but with a high caseload? And they haven't thought through the systems that that means. We've had this confusion all week, which actually is a bit more serious, really, than whether the Prime Minister or Rishi Sunak self-isolate or not. Confusion all week about uh, this business of this list for exempt workers, where individual businesses are going to have to apply to their relevant department. Would you even know who your relevant department is? Was there going to be a named exemption list? And this confusion, again, by ministers about what actually are the requirements. We had this on the radio on Thursday morning with Kwasi Kwarteng saying the rules are you have to self-isolate if you're pinged by NHS test and trace. That's not the rules, that's the guidance. Uh, if you're called up, you do have to self-isolate. But, but it's not law, and that's the point he was making, wasn't it? Which is confusing, that if you're not legally obliged to download the app or to or, or, or to self-isolate, um, but it is, you know, it is guidance and you are very strongly urged to do so. I thought Kwasi Kwarteng was absolutely not using, the, not really being able to distinguish between what is the law and what is in guidance by just using this very vague phrase, the rules, which doesn't really help anyone because there's a huge big difference between what you're advised to do and what you're required to do because one constitutes an offence and the other one doesn't. So I think they've made a terrible mess of this week. And I think one of the things that the government should be quite worried about is whether as the sort of you know vaccine effect wears off, which has inoculated them from most political criticism over the last few months, as that wears off, is their underlying failure to get their act together and their messages straight going to come increasingly to the fore? And this week has been a really bad week for people who think that actually, as we do take some, you know, as Alex and Tom said, some very difficult decisions about how do we reinstill confidence in the opening up of the economy, which really does matter. Do we trust that the government has actually got a grip on what's happening. Uh, sounds a bit like Keir Starmer, but I do think yeah. yesterday he had a point. And I think, I mean, pick up on Jules, the government needs to get a grip really quickly because the supply chain and food supplies in particular is going to come to a head really quickly. Right, we're, we're talking about the, pandem- the pandemic, the yeah, fact that the- loads of workers cannot go to work because they've been pinged more than half a million uh, or government figures, and this is going to go on until August uh, the, the, the 19th, at which point apparently that, that obligation lifts. That's causing all sorts of problems for businesses, but particularly for food and other uh, supply chains that operate on a kind of just-in-time basis. And as we saw earlier in the pandemic, that can come to a head very quickly, partly because of genuine supply issues and partly because once stories like this start to circulate, people panic buy or even buy just a little bit extra to get them through a few more days. And that then creates uh, creates problems. There are you know serious people from the supermarkets and from the food supply sector who are uh, normally desperate to avoid saying uh, or any suggestion that there are gaps in supply or problems with supply uh, and they're sounding the alarm pretty urgently now so I think this is going to come to come to a head for the government really very quickly. Alex I'm not sure whether you, whether you, can, you or Tom can clarify it for me why 
do things change if I'm double vaccinated in mid-August? Why do the isolation rules then change? I don't think I've ever understood quite the rationale. So, I mean, I think there's, there's some evidence around, um, you know, obviously you get a bit more protection after your, your second vaccination. But obviously, as lots of people have been pointing out, it doesn't provide full protection and you can still transmit the virus after you've been double vaccinated. So uh, there's not a huge logic behind those rules. I think the other thing that it does is creates that sort of sense of unfairness, which is going to undermine compliance. If some people have had sort of the option to get double vaccinated and other people haven't, then you, you, you get more of a problem there. I think the other point, just to pick up on something Jill said, is just the sense of how boxed in the government is at the moment. You know, we've seen this on nightclubs, for example, where the government position seems to be completely bewildering. You know, the fact that they're expecting, you know, lots of people to go back into nightclubs, possibly wearing masks. But, you know, when when infections are so uh, sort of large among the young population. But actually, a lot of people saying, and in, you know, know what's going on in the Conservative Party, the government simply didn't have the numbers to prolong those restrictions. You see the government at the moment talking about introducing vaccine passports or COVID passports from September. Again, probably doesn't have the numbers to do that, but is sort of flying out there potentially to try and increase vaccinations among young people. So you, what you get the sense of is the government do- doesn't see particularly much room for manoeuvre on this, as is really being sort of forced into its position. Right. So what happened to the science? I mean, you've written a great deal about the government's use of science for us, and the government has talked a great deal about its use of science. Um, is it being driven by the science here? Is it being buffeted about by kind of a sense of what people want? Is it, is it the Prime Minister's own whim? What's going on? It's an interesting question, and I think it's a little bit hard to tell. I mean, clearly, we, I mean, we don't have the sage minutes. Uh, the last published ones were the sort of seventh of July when they were sort of sounding a few concerns about the government's plans but being quite reserved. You see Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance up there with the Prime Minister, Chris Whitty expressing his personal opinion that pushing the wave back could be more harmful. So you get a sense that the scientists are divided but I think you also get a sense from listening to some of the sort of other scientists out there a bit more external on the media that a lot of them are quite concerned about the government's approach and you've got more of that in, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you've got Sage sort of briefing newspapers, which suggests perhaps that's the only way they see to sort of get their view out if the, their minutes aren't being published quite as quickly as they, as they might hope. So I think, yes, broadly, this is being driven perhaps a bit more by the politics than by the science, but we haven't got a exactly clear sense of what advice they're getting in private. And do you take the charge by Jeremy Farrow, who's director of the Wellcome Trust, member of the SAGE group advising the government, and I'm interviewing him at one at one o'clock on Monday. Everyone do join us. Is he right in saying that the Prime Minister is really driving this through kind of libertarian ideology and the science has got left behind? He, he's accusing the Prime Minister of causing the second wave or letting the second wave happen with the consequence of tens of thousands of, he would argue, unnecessary deaths. I mean, I think it, it, in my view, it, there was, you know, a, a clear mistake in the delay to that second lockdown. Uh, we wrote about this at the time for IFG, and there was a sort of clear coalition of people. It wasn't just the scientists, actually, saying around that point that really locking down was the only option to get a hold of case numbers. We, of course, did not have the vaccine at that stage. And I think it's quite difficult to justify why the government delayed as, as long as it did. And really, that second wave, the, the extent of that second wave, was a serious, serious mistake. I think some of the accusations in Farrah's book are interesting in that he's sort of arguing that that Boris Johnson and others at the sort of centre of government have been gripped by some of the more libertarian scientists, you know, the sort of Great Barrington Declaration 
bunch who, who Farah has a very low opinion of, as do many other scientists. I think that's a bit harder to tell. We know that some of them were sort of invited in to give briefings, and certainly Sage did seem out of favour for a, a, a period in the autumn. That was also made more difficult because uh, the Labour Party was obviously aligning with them. I, d- I don't want to go too much into history, though, uh, though we will go over it on mon- Monday. And anyone who wants to listen, please yeah, please join us at one. But it's interesting points you're making, which bring us on to um, the Dominic Cummings assault of the week. Alex, your take on this, this is in the form of an interview with uh, Laura Koonsberg, an extraordinary one and an opinion really divided as whether he's done damage to the prime minister or enormous damage to himself. Uh, yes, it's becoming a regular occurrence, these uh, uh, Dominic Cummings shows, isn't it? Almost as regular as Prince Harry, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, just yeah. one more thing to say. Yeah, okay. Frank Sinatra. It's damaging for the Prime Minister, but I think uh, it's you know as or more damaging for Dominic Cummings himself. The, uh, you know, the, the, the headlines that came out of his interview were less about government incompetence or the need for changes to be made and more about that you know he and a cabal were supposedly plotting soon after the 2019 election victory. To, to potentially get rid of the Prime Minister and that surprised a lot of people with the speed of it if not the fact of it. And the anti-democratic thrust of it. Yes. Uh, you know, never mind that Boris Johnson has been elected by the population of the, of the UK or you know, yes. enough, of, enough of them here his aides thinking how can we get rid of this Exactly. Puppet? Which is consistent with much of what Dominic Cummings has said. He's, uh, you know, more interested in systems and processes and uh, and and doing things in government than the uh, democratic legitimacy and accountability that governments show. I think the likelihood is there'll be a kind of short term uh, actually rallying round the prime minister because conservative backbenchers have very little time now for uh, Dominic Cummings, and so they'll see a bit of um, sympathy for him. But I think it goes a little bit to what you were talking about with Jill around the Sunday morning isolate not. Isolate mistake that the PM and Rishi Sunak made earlier in the week. It will be the concern about the grip that Number Ten has, yeah. and so I think the longer term damage will be that what Cummings is saying feeds into this narrative that this is not a functional Number Ten, and the Prime Minister himself doesn't have grip. Jill, quick thought on that. I think Alex is right. I mean, in terms of substance, beyond the we would. decided he was no good and therefore decided we had to get rid of him admission and the other interesting admission about not being able to judge whether Brexit was the right decision or not that grabbed the headlines. There wasn't actually anything particularly substantive in what Dominic Cummings told Laura Kunzberg than he'd covered in his seven hours of testimony that we talked about a few weeks ago in front of that joint uh, joint session of the Health and Social Care Committee and the Science and Technology Committee. So there wasn't real news in that, though obviously having that in a much more immediate format, and we assume that BBC Two, even at seven o'clock on a gorgeous Tuesday evening, had a rather better audience than, uh, uh, than that long committee hearing it has probably reached a wider audience. But I think what Alex is right, I think the short-term damage is entirely to Dominic Cummings because most people just say, who the hell does he think he is? And actually, we elected the Prime Minister, not you, mate. Uh, No, he may be uh, having reservations about whether he uh, should have appointed Dominic Cummings now. Imagine he had time to reflect on that while he's in checkers uh, on his own at the moment. But I think in the longer run... It is this background thing of even his closest aides didn't really think he was up to the job. And that now is a benchmark against everything that people say. And also, and I think the interesting thing there is that 
his instincts on handling the pandemic and not necessarily the instincts of the British people, which I think is a really interesting thing about this mask debate, that I think one of the things the Prime Minister has been forced to slightly confront over masks is that people like Desmond Swain and some of his sort of anti-lockdown sceptic ultras on the Conservative backbenches do not actually represent the general mood of the British people. And one of the things this, as quite a populist government, has been quite good at doing is generally channeling the views of the population at large. It's one of the reasons why they continue to do really quite well in the opinion polls. So I think that sort of out-of-touchness is quite an interesting, um, you know, almost the premise of being forced to act contrary to his natural instincts. But uh, So I think there is the potential for long-run damage. But one of the questions, I think, which again I assume will come up in your uh, discussion with Jeremy Farrow on Monday is how soon do we get to the public inquiry? Because that's the place where this really all gets laid out in a much more objective way than just a he said, he said of Dominic Cummings versus the Prime Minister. Tom, just wrap this up for us. What are we going to be talking about in September? Is it vaccine passports, booster germs, yet more variants? Where do you think it's going? So I'm I'm pretty sceptical of how serious the government is about vaccine passports, to be honest with you, just because of the way they've sort of brought it forward, you know, sort of not really bothering to explain where it would apply, you know, why they really want to do it. I think it's more of a ploy to try and drive up uh, vaccination levels in the young people. And I don't think it's even a particularly good way of doing that. And as I said earlier, they perhaps haven't even got the numbers to get it through. I think vaccine efficacy, durability is going to be a big one for the autumn. You know, how long are these going to provide protections? How soon are we going to need boosters that will have a big impact on you know how much vaccine we can share as well in the whole international conversation which uh, you might also pick up with Jeremy and I think the, the last thing is you know apart from the sort of potential reimposition of, of restrictions that Alex mentioned earlier I think we'll be talking a lot about localized approaches here this third wave or fourth wave depending on how you count it is going to be different to the previous ones because of the level of vaccination and protection and, and because we don't have lockdown measures in place so you're going to see the, the sort of virus spread at different speeds around the country. But so I think there's going to be a refocus on, on local approaches, but it'll be interesting to see how they uh, change that compared to the local lockdowns of, of the sort of previous time, because we know they didn't work very well. So it might be a case of looking at sort of bigger regional approaches or, or things like that. OK, so you're not at this exact point a few days after Freedom Day looking forward to another national lockdown. No, I would be surprised if we see if we see another national lockdown anytime soon. Okay, let's turn to our second question, which is the question of government advisors, this time non-executive directors on Whitehall boards. That's the Whitehall Department make up the government. Well, it's more hazardous territory than you might have thought. Just a month ago, after all, it was going to be Matt Hancock fronting the Freedom Day media round. But the former health secretary's affair with Gina Colodangelo, which bust through any sense of social distance, put paid to that. But this story goes beyond his career prospects. It asks rather bigger questions about the way government is run and who ministers bring in to help them run it, which is something that we've argued, you know, they do need. Joining us now is Matthew Gill, IFG Senior Fellow and author of our new report into Whitehall Non-Executive Directors. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Bronwyn. Matthew, Gina Colodangelo was one of those non-executive directors, or NEDs, as they're called. What was her job? Well, she was a member of the uh, departmental board um, in, in DHSC, and that's not the same as being on, on a 
PLC board. Uh, it doesn't have executive power, uh, but it is intended to import some of the kinds of disciplines that would apply to a board of a public limited company. So to import commercial expertise, um, to advise the department, to provide independent scrutiny of what um, the department is doing. And so independent uh, board members would do things like chairing the audit or risk committees. And they would also have quite a lot of soft power in the department, so access to quite a lot of information and the the right, formally at least, to, to recommend to the Prime Minister that the permanent secretary be replaced. And so these are quite influential positions, potentially, depending on how they're interpreted. DHSC, of course, is the Department of Health and Social Care. And so she would have gone to its board meetings and... Yes. There's quite a range of um, ability there, isn't there, to, to be able to say, to chip into all kinds of conversations and to say, look, um, is this really the right strategy? What are you doing? How are you going to pay for it? And so on. Absolutely. And quite a bit of ambiguity as to the, the status of that input. And so de- de- depending on the individuals, they could in some cases be, be accorded quite a lot of influence over what was going on in the department. So how would she have been appointed? This is tricky because this is an unregulated appointment, which is one of the things we point out in our in our report. And so the way that was supposed to have happened is set out in guidance. And some of that guidance in the way it is phrased is, is at pains to point out that the department doesn't have to follow the guidance. So there's a lot of ambiguity as to what should have happened. So there are rules, but the department doesn't have to follow the rules. Is, is that what we mean by unregulated? Well, unregulated means not covered by the Commissioner for Public Appointments. Right. So the, 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 the guidance is, in, in this case, less formal. But in the case of Gina Colodangelo, it's even more complicated because she was appointed directly by the minister rather than going through the full appointment process, even if that had been followed. And so if this had been a regulated appointment, it would have been made public why she was appointed directly rather than through the full normal process. And we would be able to look that up. But because this isn't a regulated appointment, we can't do that. And so we don't know what the justification was for a direct appointment by Matt Hancock. And so this is not very transparent. And that explains why there have been calls for publication of all the details of how this came about. So we'll come on to that. But um, just to make clear, this is a legal thing to do. It's just one that's not encouraged by all the governance rules. Indeed. Right. And your report reveals that quite a few NEDs have got quite a lot of political experience or party affiliation. I mean, how many? Approximately one fifth. And is that a problem? It might not be a problem case by case um, because these are ultimately political appointments. And so if um, candidates have got the, the skills required to do the job, it's acceptable to appoint them. It does raise questions cumulatively as to the independence of the people who are coming onto these boards. Because what we've observed is that the members of departmental boards appear to have more political connection than members of boards of public bodies that fall within the regulatory process. And that's in a way surprising given the role, because the role is to provide independent scrutiny and challenge to the department. So you would think there might be a predisposition towards less political connection rather than more. Jill, what do you make of all this? I think Matthew is completely right to say this is a sort of uh, very murky area. We saw this big reform back in 2010 by Francis Maud wanting to beef up uh, what have been pretty ad hoc arrangements around departmental boards, make them ministerially chaired, so they'd be chaired by the Secretary of State, and bring in these non-executive directors. The non-executive directors were at the time supposed to be people who could particularly bring sort of management expertise 
and help Secretary of State, many of whom haven't managed anything more than a couple of researchers in their constituency office before, uh, actually help them manage some of the very big tasks that departments have to do, particularly some of the big projects that we've seen quite often go wrong in Whitehall. And if you like, also, I think, help sort of mediate that relationship, which we've seen can be quite often quite fractious between ministers and their civil servants, partly by helping ministers understand what they should be asking their civil servants, but also help civil servants perhaps convince ministers that implementation takes time. You can't just click your fingers and some policy will have instantaneous effects. So introduce a degree of sort of dispassion and realism to that debate. And that's why I think it's quite interesting some of the stuff Matthew's discovered about who's being appointed. Because what we don't really need is just another layer of surrogate politicos. Because one of the things that's very notable in the UK government system is we already have far more ministers, so political appointees, in departments than most other like systems. We may have fewer political advisors, so those special advisors than systems, but we do have a lot of politicians in our departments in ministerial roles and we should be asking why they can't be giving that sort of political steer to the department why do we need to bring in people for sort of wider policy political angles the bit that is if you like deficient is that sort of management now particularly very often on the ministerial side but it's an area where the civil service is always or yeah ministers have always potentially found people who particularly come up through a policy route as a bit lacking. All right. So I wonder, I wonder whether you're, you're undercooking that, that management now. So you've, you've worked in the private sector as well as many, many years in the civil service. And it does bring something, doesn't it, which many of these people with a private sector background can bring, a sense of the, the disciplines of the, the, the commercial sector. It's a different cultural outlook, and they're in a formal position on these boards. Isn't, isn't that different and, and adds a, a different kind of value from just a political advisor? No, I think that is why that's a valuable position and why that actually the original conception that you would be looking for people with very significant business management experience and commercial experience was actually thinking, well, you could see how that would be value adding. If you just get some people who've come up predominantly through being special advisors being politicians, and those are the sort of people who are being appointed or have backgrounds in things like PR, like Gina Colodangelo, then I think there's a big question mark about what value are they really adding to those boards other than just buttressing the ministerial viewpoint a bit and giving him another source of political advice. So I think it's a real shame if we lose the original Maud conception, but we are promised in the uh, Declaration on Government Reform a new uh, look at departmental governance, including the role of non-executive directors. But I think there's some hint there that that's to widen their role beyond the original, original moored conception. And possibly, get, and possibly get rid of some of the, 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 the more commercial ones or, or, or get rid of um, so many of them. Alex, I wanted to bring you in on exactly that point, the Declaration of Government on, on Government Reform, which is uh, a, a big um, statement that Michael Gove made some weeks ago. And he talked about changing or broadening the role of NEDS. Is that code for easing out some of these commercial types and bringing in more to be blunt cronies of the government? I'm not sure it is, uh, certainly in terms of, you know, if you take the government at its word, I think they uh, also profess to want both in civil servants and these wider appointments more commercial experience and, and, and private sector experience. But I do think that the government, and I think Michael Gove in particular, sees an enhanced role for these non-executives uh, as 
being part of the improvements to government that he made. If you if you look at what he did when he was Secretary of State in DEFRA, one of the non-executive directors he brought in was Henry Dimbleby, the, I think, co-founder of Leon, the restaurant ch- chain, who has just done a huge piece of work and a review for the government on the food sector and created a food strategy. So I think the government and Gove see these people as being possible disruptors for you know with the civil service and uh, ways of getting new ideas and new approaches into government as well as the more traditional role of a non-executive which was almost as a sort of assurance uh, someone who can assure and can uh, look at what policy that a department has set and say well are you you on track to deliver it yeah all right so thank you for that matthew what needs to change now well, um, we make a few recommendations on this. I mean, the, the obvious one is to regulate appointments, appointments to departmental boards, which would bring them within the same framework as appointments to other public bodies. Um, there seems no no good reason not to do that. I mean, the second one, building on what Jill and Alex have been saying, is really to clarify what the role is supposed to be. One of the issues we discovered is that there is differences of interpretation by ministers in different departments as to who they should appoint and what they think should be should be done by this role. And if if the if the distinct benefit of the role is uh, disruption, then that should be clear. If the benefit is assurance or independent commercial advice, that should be clear. And, and then we, sh- we should be able to bring the right the right people in to do that. Ministers should try in that context to, to just avoid appointing people who are either not going to be independent or are going to duplicate existing expertise. And finally, I think a much greater degree of transparency around the appointment process, potential conflicts of interest and what non-executive directors are actually doing would make it far easier for people to have confidence in the system. And what is the incentive for ministers to do this? Do you, do you detect any appetite for reform? Because all the things you're urging them not to do are really very convenient for them. Well, I think there, there's obviously now some, some degree of, 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 of public pressure on this. The Committee on Standards for Public Life has highlighted the issue and government will need to respond to their um, final report when it comes out in the, in, in the autumn. Um, but I think it's also true uh, that getting this right um, is is for the benefit of of ministers who who will want to be running effective departments and I think there's a there's a separate conversation that can be had about well if there are different functions that you need performing in the department or um, you need more advisors of a particular kind there may be other ways to bring those in um, but having um, operational experience, people who can bring in fresh perspectives and genuinely challenge the department has to ultimately lead to better outcomes. And that has to be in the interests of the ministers running those departments. Well, fascinating. Thanks very much indeed for that. A really fascinating report you've put out as well. And I think it's the end of the story, but it's the end of this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Tom Sass, Jill Rutter and Matthew Gill. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do head to IFG Live, which is our sister podcast channel. And on Monday, as I said, I'll be interviewing Sir Jeremy Farrer about his role at the forefront of the UK's response to the pandemic. If the excerpts from his new book, Spike, or anything to go by, he's not going to hold back. And do remember to check out all our work, including Matthew's great paper at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Summer is upon us. Do enjoy it. Who knows when we're going to be back inside again. Have a good weekend.